Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And while I mainly bring you episodes recorded live at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater, there are certain episodes that I bring you that are one-on-one, and I record those at the Writers Guild, which I'm a member of. Go unions. Yes, I'm proud of them. Yes, sometimes they get corrupt. But like everything, it's up to the people, and I'm very proud of my union, the Writers Guild. And I would love more guild jobs. That would be wonderful. I'm really thrilled to bring you my interview with Jessica Bennett, who is a journalist at The New York Times, and her new book, The Feminist Fight Club, is a must-have. It's all about how women and people who love them um, can amplify their success since females are notoriously, (laughs) despite being 51% of the population, um, notoriously left behind in the upper echelons and all the way through in terms of everything from getting credit to how much we get paid. And sexism is subtle for the most part. And that's what makes it even more corrosive. And it happens from females and males because we all, we all, we all take in these mores, whether they're sexist, racist, homophobic. And of course, all of those issues factor in as well. And I find that this book can be useful for anyone who feels like their voice is not heard enough. Um, I don't work in an office, which I mentioned to Jessica, but um, I still found the advice incredibly useful. And that's why I wanted to share it with you. And I also want to encourage you to check out other episodes we've done um, one-on-one. Emily Bazelon, who's at Slate, who's well, she was at Slate. She's now at the New York Times. And she's one of the leading experts on the courts, as well as Congressman Barney Frank. That was taped one-on-one. Dick Cavett, Mike White, and Jill Abramson, who was the former New York Times executive editor. You can learn about tattoos, her tattoos. Yes, that episode went viral. Um, But she was also a tour de force. And I think it's really, I just really want to highlight so many of these exceptional, um, particularly females, but trailblazers in their fields in both um, paving the way for themselves while also calling attention to issues that affect so many of us. Okay, enjoy my interview with the one-on-one only, Jessica Bennett. I look at you as a journalist who's had a column. You've written for Newsweek. You were the editor. I'm going to get the exact title incorrect, but you're going to be able to correct me for Lean In as well. So you've worked in journalism, but you've also you know, worked for a nonprofit startup. To me, you have had just tremendous success. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Um, I did uh, since the fifth grade when the editor-in-chief of the Seattle Times came to my elementary school class and did workshops with us. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, so I'm like that rare person that was like, this is what I'm going to do um, and just immediately went to school for it and then graduated and started doing it. It makes sense to me, though, now that I've interviewed so many people, that it tends to be like we did actually know. A lot of people who are artists and, and um generally knew at some point it doesn't mean that it was nurtured from the get-go but in your case it it was yeah and I think that is why you were able to start right away um yeah maybe I mean at Newsweek 
I definitely didn't waste money going to graduate school for journalism, which I have a lot of friends who did and spent yes. a lot of money, and I'm not sure it was actually effective whatsoever. It makes me feel so much um, better. Tell me that's so, true for MFAs and screenwriting, yeah, probably. too. <laughs> um, and especially, you know, now in journalism, it's like, you don't need to study it at all. You just start doing it. Um, yes. But at the time I was beginning it, it was sort of frowned upon a bit that I hadn't gone to graduate school and I didn't have a graduate degree but really I learned everything in undergraduate that I would need to know and yeah I did a lot of unpaid internships and I worked the night cops beat at the Boston Globe when you, I was still in school. You did? Do you know Maria Kramer? No. She was all she's a she's a Boston Globe reporter she's on the spotlight team but she, oh okay she's, she's, she's doing like beat. real amazing yeah. stuff. Um, no I was just oh. a young student journalist who was hired on a six-month gig for a fellowship to do the 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. shift. Wow. Going to crime scenes. Wow. In and, Boston. Mm-hmm. In Boston. I mean, it was mostly in Dorchester. Rocks, yeah. Um, <laughs> you and Whitey Bulger in Dorchester. <laughs> or usually I was the Whitey, like <laughs> okay. going into <laughs> the neighborhoods of color and knocking on doors after there had been something horrible happen and people being like get the fuck out of here yeah (laughs) who are you you only show up when something bad happens so I almost veered and didn't become a journalist because of that because I I hated it so much so interesting because I was in social service and I like started doing community service I grew up in DC where Marion Barry was Mm re-elected after a videotape showed him with a prostitute and cocaine Mm -hmm. and you know it was I learned so much about social stratification in such an important way mm-hmm. and understanding the privilege that I had merely by being white. Mm-hmm. But I will also say that I was um, terrified mm-hmm. in a way that wasn't like helpful to be like, okay, so what can I do about this? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that job, there was never any depth to it. You were only there to get maybe one or two sentences that would be printed in the morning's paper. So even if people opened up to you, you could never do their story justice. And you would go home every morning, I guess, feeling just like a horrible person, basically. <laughs> and I was like, why Why are they even covering this at all? Like, wh- why what is they? the point? Sorry to mean to interrupt, but why were no, they? That's fine. Because I think that they'd always done it and... These the poor crimes were predominantly happening in low-income areas. And so, like so many things, they didn't give them space in the paper. Yeah. Um, and it was really discouraging. And I sort of fled from there. From the metro section or from Boston or from Dorchester or? Kind of all of it. <laughs> well, so when I finished up, um, I... I did that for a semester. I was like, I had taken a semester off of school to do that because I had this special program. And then I went to Argentina to finish out my school. Um, and and then I came back and didn't know what I was going to do and thought maybe I would try to work in nonprofits or do something entirely different. And then, you know, luckily I discovered magazines uh, where there is depth and you are allowed to have a voice. Can and you clarify which magazines have that depth? <laughs> well, at the time I was working at Newsweek, I, okay. which ones still have it, I don't know. <laughs> um, but certainly it was better than the brief section of the crime blotter. But that's interesting that you felt like at Newsweek you would have more long-form journalism is what it sounds like to me. Or at Oh, least completely. I mean, also it was a product of my position there. I had risen up a bit. But yeah, the internet had 
begun. <laughs> and so nobody, none of the older people, the more established reporters wanted to be writing online. So if you were a young, hungry journalist, then you could do these really long pieces online and, and hardly anyone would even vet them. Uh, so you had a lot of freedom to do stuff. And I think that ended up being a really good training ground for me. That's fantastic. I feel like that's how Slate and Salon, mm-hmm. you know, became entities yeah. unto themselves is that they had so much freedom to do yeah. whatever they wanted. Completely. Um, so it is funny that you went to Newsweek, I will say, just because of the epic case that happened in the 70s. Um, and it was a very famous case in part because um, Nora Ephron, among others, was um, very vocal <laughs> about how difficult it was mm-hmm. to be a journalist there. And the reason I, I bring this up is because when I started in stand-up, the sexism was so overt. I was not fuckable enough, um, and that's why I couldn't yeah. perform. And and people said that. Yeah, oh, straight out loud. That was why we couldn't, I couldn't get wow. past at a club. And it was almost more infuriating to me when like I couldn't get a job writing on shows mm-hmm. with male peers who went to the same or similar kinds of schools as, that I did. Mm-hmm. And because... The reason that I say that is there was a transparency to the club scene of like, this is demoralizing. This is going to hurt. Do you really want to do this? Because mm-hmm. this is what the scene is. Mm-hmm. And so it was very clear cut. And eventually I quit stand up. I was like, I don't right. actually want to be at the Laugh Factory and like have to deal with some guy yeah. ejaculating all over the seat. Not because I'm going to want to sit in the seat, but oh um, I just like, this is not what I want to be doing. Right. So, it, but it was much more difficult when it was navigating the politics of what some people call the more subtle forms of sexism. Mm-hmm. And it's been really eye-opening to read your book in part because I'm, I'm just a little bit older. Mm-hmm. So I know that it was so much worse, you know, before that ge- my right. mom's generation is so much worse before that generation. So right. I'm, I'm keenly aware of, of the progress. But um, I found your book extremely helpful in that you had, so here's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask for you, when you went to Newsweek, what was your experience like there? Did it feel like, huh, was this what it was like in the 70s? Or did it feel like progress had been made? Well, so my story was essentially that I grew up in Seattle, really progressive town, obviously, very progressive parents, uh, feminists. You know, I had two younger brothers. I outpaced them in everything. And I was very used to excelling. And so, you know, I went through college, got good grades, sort of slid by And then I got my first real job at Newsweek post the short stint at the Boston Globe. And it was the first time that suddenly I didn't know why I wasn't getting ahead. And I was moving at a slower pace than my male colleagues. We had this intern class where we had all kind of started together. And so you could compare yourself very directly to the men in the group who were rising up the masthead, getting longer form assignments, having their byline very frequently in the pages of the magazine. And so it was really frustrating. And I ended up turning to the web to get to do a lot more stuff because at that time that was still considered kind of the ugly stepchild of the magazine. Um, But eventually my female colleagues and I started talking about how we were all feeling this. And but just like you said, it was this subtlety, you know, what what really was it? Well, sometimes I would pitch a story in a meeting and it would get rejected. And then a couple of weeks later, I'd see basically that same story in the magazine under a man's byline. Okay, so 
was that because they were sexist or was that because I didn't pitch it in the right way and I just wasn't delivering it with authority and maybe they didn't like my writing style it was very easy to turn inward and think that the problem was me not the system and what I would say ultimately actually the problem is your problem so meaning that that whether you can actually dissect the root of social stratification in that way and say like is it is it my rank purely because I'm a female is it my rank purely because I'm not as you know I haven't worked here as many years Mm -hmm. as this person ultimately that problem becomes your problem in the end because you're stuck being like so how do I pitch it better right if that's if that if it really is in my control or what is it that I can control well and so for us what happened was we discovered the story of those women of 1970 who had sued the magazine for gender discrimination. And this happened because a researcher in the library sort of knew that we were grumbling and frustrated and dug up this old text in our time by the writer Susan Brown Miller and left it on my desk with a post-it note to a page about the women of Newsweek. And so two of my colleagues and I walked back after lunch and we saw it there and we were like what is this and we opened it up and we read this story of these women who in the year 1970 had all gathered there were 46 of them and they had organized and they had sued Newsweek magazine for gender discrimination in the first lawsuit of its kind and they were represented by Eleanor Holmes Norton yes who who was my who was the shadow senator of my uh, hometown for uh, Washington yes. DC and and so for us learning that history actually allowed us to understand our place in the present I think and I remember at the time so basically you know we're journalists so our journalist brains were like how are we going to cope with this new information we're going to report on it and so we tracked down the original women and we started reporting and we wanted to do a piece we knew the 40th anniversary of that lawsuit was coming up and so we were like clearly we need to write this in oral history looking at what has changed and what hasn't, and run it in the pages of the magazine, which was incredibly controversial and political and took months and months to make happen. But the point was, when I was talking to people for that story, I interviewed Gail Collins, the columnist at the New York Times. and Also an employee of the month. Oh, amazing. She's amazing. I love her. And she said something that has always stuck with me, which was, you know, sexism for her generation was certainly much, much worse. But it almost had a kind of benefit in that you knew it when you saw it. It was very clear-cut discrimination, had a legal definition. And so you weren't left wondering, is it me? Am I crazy? Is this just a feeling? And so I think today's sexism is much more subtle. And, And so throughout the book, I try to identify some of these subtleties, whether it's the fact that women are more likely to be interrupted when they speak or that they more frequently have their ideas attributed to men accidentally oftentimes unconsciously or things like when we negotiate we're viewed as pushy but all of these things are so subtle and it's hard to call out in the moment and it's not clear-cut discrimination so how do you fight back against it yeah I I love that you're trying to approach these things. And I, I think, you know, and when I say trying to approach these things, meaning that there is a limit to how much control you can have when you're within a system, um, meaning present day. So right. that's what I meant by try. Mm-hmm. Um, that these are, these, are, these are tactics to try and use and to try and employ um, within it. I was envious that you had this group of women, partly because you work in a structure, you work in an organization, that you could band together 
Yes. And on the same page. And I thought that that was really wonderful, both that you had created this feminist fight club mm-hmm. of your own um, with peers that were not necessarily at Newsweek at the time or then Time and now the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also sounded like you had peers at Newsweek who yeah. wanted to deal with this in a very similar way. And that seems really gratifying. Yeah. I didn't necessarily at first. I mean, it took some talking and being really open and vulnerable, I think, to realize that we all were experiencing the same thing. And I think that instinctively our gut was at times to compete with one another instead of talking about the issues we were all facing and maybe thinking of it as a larger gender issue instead of something that we needed to fight against one another in order to overcome. So we got to that point and and then it was very valuable. And, and in the end, we did publish the piece and we were employing all of these covert tactics to make sure that we could get all of the women on our side in the office and many of the men too. And one of them was putting it into the system where everyone could see what was there so that everyone would read the story before we went public about it. And it, various other ways of just trying to make sure that the women felt included in this conversation mm-hmm. and that we could talk about it as a group. That's incredible because I, I mean I, I would say that that's been the limitation for any movement. So like whether it's um, you know Bernie Sanders obviously had such an impact with a very specific population, but it doesn't carry over to the other um, to more conservative right. people necessarily. And the flip side happens. Basically, if it's hard to get someone to listen to you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so how do you make room for that person's yeah. voice as well? And it sounded like you guys expertly um, did that. I I did want to ask like. Writing for Newsweek and Time versus the New York Times, what is that experience like for you since you've now been able to do both? Um, Meaning magazines versus yeah. a newspaper. I very much like, at the Times is a magazine approach to newspapers in a way. So you get to be more, color, you get to be more of a magazine writer within the confines of a newspaper. I like it because it moves quickly and I am impatient and I would get so, so frustrated waiting for months and months for a magazine story that I'd written to run. And you would always know that if it was being held too long, maybe it wasn't going to run. But everyone in magazines is passive aggressive, so nobody would ever tell you in a story wasn't going to run. So you would just keep waiting, hoping. So I do very much appreciate the idea of you write a thing, it gets edited, and it gets published. Uh, It's very satisfying. And my editors at all three places have been really amazing. And I think that that's so rare now because editors who really work with copy and truly edit are it's a lost art why is it a lost art because the internet's too fast and nobody has time okay and And why don't they just say you know what we're not going to go this fast anymore we don't need to be a 24-hour cable network we don't need to we don't need to put out stuff that's shitty like why can't you say like oh my god well that's like quality versus Uh, quantity uh I don't know because everyone is competing against one another and they think that they have to be faster oh, and it it's like a self-fulfilling FOMO. Okay. <laughs> you know, like yeah. everyone's afraid that they're going to miss out and so they have to go faster and and also because the market is saturated and so it doesn't pay and so you're hiring younger and younger people to do m- more senior jobs and they're not as experienced. Yeah. Um, it's been really crazy to watch because – I didn't graduate that long ago. Like I've been doing this for about 10 years yeah. and I entered into the industry like 
right at about the time when it was beginning to implode. And so luckily I was still early enough that I adapted really quickly and, and became a digital journalist. But just to see how quickly it moves and, you know, I always have a battle constantly in every job I've ever had that's like, I don't want to move this fast. I want to make this story good and I need time to do that. But the reality is like, sometimes you have to take less money in order to do that because you're not going to get paid enough. But then the question is like, how do you survive? You have like seven jobs. Okay. At once. <laughs> At all times. Is I mean, if you you're do? freelance, which is, yeah, which is what I am now. Yeah. You always have um, a side gig or maybe you have, I know a lot of journalists who have freelance journalists who have like their kind of quiet corporate gig. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they're copywriting. Okay. Uh, nothing with their name on it. And then it allows them to do the thing that they want to do, which doesn't pay. Okay. And, and I actually, well, we were talking earlier about how we have a lot of rage. This is another issue that I have a lot of yeah. rage on. Like, you know, the journalism industry is so purist. And you're supposed to be objective, even though we all know that nobody's really objective. Yes. And, you know, you're never supposed to associate with brands or anything remotely connected to a brand. And yet, how are you supposed to make a living as a journalist? Because places don't pay. So people always ask me, young people very frequently ask me, how do you do it? How do you make it as a freelancer? And I don't think that I could have, had I started earlier, I wouldn't have enough connections and relationships to do it. Well, that's what happened with me. Because I used to freelance, right? And I I stopped being able to make a living and I didn't know... um, I was of I was sort of between ages mm-hmm. there, and I hadn't made it big enough. I think if you made it big enough, you're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, but if you haven't, it's it's a real problem. And it's still, you know, like I have multiple jobs, and I still do. So I always say, like, get some shitty job that pays a lot. Yeah. That kills your soul, but you only do it like ten hours a week. Like it doesn't matter. It's just going to pay your rent. Like have it direct debited into your account. Yeah because no one else is going to direct debit for you. And then you can do the other stuff and have a little bit of flexibility. The other thing I wanted to ask you, because you, you brought it up with the, the corporation part, I mean, the, the problem with brands versus, um, you know, being able to do, be a purist mm-hmm. um, and, and merely do what you love and it's economically unsustainable. I, I did want to talk about it because it, it brings up this thing about like hashtag feminism and hashtag activism in, in general. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, I envy what feels like a generational shift where people like I like to wear lipstick and I like to and I believe in equal rights for women and I'm OK with that. Mm-hmm. And I remember in college at Wesleyan at like the head of the women's network, you know, I was really shamed for wearing skirts and all of these things. And I was like, no, I've read the same books that mm-hmm. you have and I've made certain choices and I'm aware that those choices reflect certain mores that that don't necessarily um transpire in ways that I would always like I know that and I'm okay with that and so I I really do admire that this generation has been like yeah we don't we're we know that it's okay right um at the same time (laughs) I feel like there's a real diminishing of what um the priorities are in terms of what is important to be focusing on and um I'm worried a little bit you know even even the idea of like I love that saying about, you know, being a mediocre. Oh, yeah. Carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. Yeah. Like, it's it's hilarious. And then when I think about it, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Are we setting the standard at, like, let's all be mediocre? You know, like, should I <laughs> right. stop 
should I start interrupting people because he interrupts me? Should I go around bragging about things that like, so I, I do worry um, about just sort of adopting these like awful attributes that right. I find about right. male culture and they're awful attributes about female culture. These are mm-hmm. stereotypical tropes, but I'm just not sure why we have to like emulate the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you do live within a certain system. So I, it, it's a, it's not, there's no one answer yeah. to this question. I mean, it's really tricky. I think that some of it is about calling attention to the issues. And if you can call attention to it, then you can call the behavior out. So just talking about it. But things like bragging, I mean, they carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. So, okay. Research shows that men exaggerate their accomplishments constantly. Yes. And... A woman will not apply for a job unless she meets 100%, all 100% of the job requirements. Yeah. But a man will apply when he meets 60%, and he thinks that's totally fine. So, okay, should you emulate the man and become a total bullshitter? No, but probably even when we as women are bullshitting or exaggerating just a little bit, we're probably just getting back to that place of where we really are because we diminish our accomplishments so much. So like ultimately we're ending up in the place where we should be from the start. So I don't know. It's tricky because I don't like to advise people to emulate men, but I know that in my own career, I had a colleague who sat next to me at Newsweek and his name was Josh, or that's what I call him. Oh, yes. In the book, you say, and, do yeah. what Josh did. And so we would, he was so confident. He spoke with such authority. And we knew that half the time he didn't know what he was talking about. But he was a good friend, and we liked him. And so we would start asking each other, well, okay, what would Josh do? WWJD, what would Josh do in this scenario? And we would try to emulate it in the sense that if we could just get a little bit closer to what he was doing, while still remaining authentic, then we'd probably get closer to whatever it was we wanted while still not being an asshole. (laughs) Well, it's also that like the way that we define confidence is by male terms. So like deep voices, body language, like taking up a lot of space, like these are male attributes. And because men have run shit since the dawn of time, then we try to mimic that or women are judged by that standard. So what happens though when you adopt all of those things well? Let's pretend I'm adopting Mm -hmm. everything correctly um, and you still get judged because you're a female doing that. Meaning you're looked at as... Well then that's like the whole double standard. I mean with all of this stuff it's like so the book is structured to provide really practical tools that are rooted in social science research for what you can do in the moment. But at the same time, there are many points throughout the book where I'm thinking to myself, if I were to think about all of these things and try to do them all at once, like my brain would fucking explode. Like there's, yeah. you can't possibly think about this stuff all the time. So I guess my sense is like, you have to do you at the end of the day. Like you can know these things. And I think the knowledge is helpful. Like for me, just knowing that a man applies when he meets only 60% of the requirements, but I only apply when I meet 100% may cause me to apply when maybe I meet like 80%. Yes. And pushes me a little bit outside of my comfort zone while not like completely mimicking the blowhard. So it's really tricky. I don't, and, and at the same time, like these are still small things that occur in our day-to-day lives and are not addressing the much larger structural issues that need to change as well. I tried it with negotiating too. Mm-hmm. And um, there's another thing there. So then when you do ask, they mm-hmm. are still more likely to say no. Right, because then you're pushy. 
Yeah, and that's the whole thing. So, so much of the research in the past few years about how women make less in the wage gap has been, okay, well, women aren't asking for it. And so it's like, how do we get women to ask? Like, all right, lean in, ask. And now women are asking, and, and the research is finding that like that's a good thing we're part yes. way there but yes. then they're perceived as pushy and and bossy and disliked when they do ask and and thus less likely to get it so okay how do you change that you just keep asking because eventually it will become normalized female behavior but as an individual it's hard you're like okay so like in 10 years this will be normalized like I'm supposed to just keep asking for like the other people I think that's what's happening because I I realized I was interviewing Phoebe Robinson and Mm -hmm. she'd had um, wonderful experience getting her show on the air and had all these opportunities and I thought about all the women I knew in public radio who never got their own shows and I mean we're talking about public radio which is a place that is so thoughtful mm-hmm. and it also has so many intelligent women and that is what you are being judged on predominantly, yeah. right? Um, and still, if you look at the number of, of shows hosted by white males versus white females, and I'm not even including the, the issue, which is such an embarrassing issue of everyone else in the population. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 this is not dismissing that, but more, more to say that in the most thoughtful arena. And then I thought, okay, this is great actually, mm-hmm. that she got this show, because I, I'm not going to, but I'm so glad that you did. Like, it, right. it was that experience. Right. Yeah, I think that that, I mean, it's I'm so, not saying I don't want my own show. Right. <laughs> well, it's like, it's tough, too, because I think that. But I did see progress there, is what I, get, is what I wanted to say, and that she could go right. in with this confidence of, like, I don't know, it just sort of happened. And I was like, oh, no, 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 it didn't right. just happen. It didn't just happen. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, don't even like, know the, the zillion of women before my generation. Right. I mean, that's why I think it's so important to like to recognize that we stand on these shoulder pads of the women who came before us. Like so, so, so important. At the same time, it can be like it's a struggle. OK, so someone younger just gets the things that you've been fighting for very easily. And that doesn't feel good. And so how do you not take that? internalize that as feeling competitive with that person like how do you be happy for that person and acknowledge that it's progress so it's really hard I mean I I think that like paying it forward I don't love that term but like it's so important like if if you're succeeding then like do something for the next person yeah I think that that's the most important I I remember I've heard from people who um, both you and I know so I won't use their names but they've said like if you're not going to be successful you should be a good person and I'm like no 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 you should be both you should be both. You should be successful and be a good person. Right. Because I, I do agree with you. I, I envy Gloria Steinem, who's so zen about, you know, she doesn't care whether people know who she is. Right. <laughs> she just wants right. progress. Right. And I thought that was so gorgeous. That said, she also did get to have her time in the sun and stand out and have a career that she can really be and should be really impressed with. And she right. works so hard. So it's all duly deserved. Right. But so I do think that it, in my case, for someone like me, I do feel frustrated, but I don't feel frustrated at that other woman who got the right. job because the truth is, is what's happening there. And even if I were to look at that example, when I just use public radio, I'm using a field that you and I are not in, mm-hmm. basically. Um, more often, they give the women podcasts right. and they give the men actual shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Jad Abumrad, who I had on the show, he had two years to incubate Radiolab. What a phenomenal show. And he's so talented and deserved it all. It's not that one person doesn't. There's enough, first of all, there's enough love to go around. There's enough content to go around. Mm -hmm. So 
it, I think the danger also is that we get pitted against each other in the same way that, you know, we had a black male president, a white female, right. and it's like, these are the only things that matter. It's like, right. no, 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 no. The thing that matters is that there's like all these other people, all these white males who are in success. Right. Well, and if... Are enjoying success. If there's still just this like small slice for women and small slice of the pie for women and people of color then like of course we feel the need to compete against one another when really like we should be fighting against the larger system that's what's that at stake created the pie i mean <laughs> that's that's what like hbo i remember they had a fellowship for people of color and women who don't get represented in hollywood mm-hmm. and you could get a, a sum of money that would not allow anyone to create a film right and it's like one fellowship that you're all competing against yeah, you're each other. All, for. They were all competing right, against like, each can other. Can I be in the not fellowship? <laughs> can I just be in the regular thing? Yeah. 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 So I, I think that the, the danger there is it, it is easy to compete against each other and assume that there is not a love, enough, enough love to go around when that's not the issue. The issue is that here are all these people in power who don't want to lose their right. place. Right. Yeah, I just truly do think that and I am not perfect at this and I sometimes I mean I frequently feel competitive with other women but if you can stop yourself and be like we're in this together and we're going to have so much more power if we work together to create larger change you know even in the examples that we're seeing now of people speaking up like the Donald Trump accusers and with Bill Cosby like individuals have been dismissed for years and years and years but as a collective, you're heard. So I think that can be applied across the board. So let me ask you with the the book out, and now you have this viral campaign of... um, Accidental viral campaign. (laughs) Want to talk about that a little bit? Um, Yes. So Pussy Grabs Back on November 8th. Hopefully, pussies will grab back, and we will (laughs) win the election. Um, Basically, a friend of mine posted after the Trump tapes became public and his terrible comments about women among many uh she posted on her facebook november 8th pussy grabs back and i thought that was hilarious because it we i think we all felt so powerless and it was active in a way you know we're grabbing back it was active and it was funny but it was also angry and so i just had this image of this snarling cat um on my desk naturally as one does and so i took a photo of it and I put it into my new fancy app on my phone and I put some text on it and we created this meme pussy grabs back and so now we've made t-shirts and we're donating the proceeds to rain to donate or to benefit what is survivors okay yeah it's the largest uh organization in the nation to benefit survivors of sexual abuse and yeah it took off and it's actually been really amazing to watch because this was sort of a joke and we didn't know what would happen from it and then people started making it their profile pictures and we were thrilled to see that happen and we felt no real ownership of it because it was such a collective effort the postcard that I had photographed was from another artist and we reached out to her and so we were all kind of in this together but people have taken it and, and run with it and kind of has launched a thousand other vagina memes and people are now protesting IRL, which is very cool to see. Like this, the hashtag pussy grabs back has been taken into real life and there are human chains being formed around Trump Tower and people are printing out signs. And I don't know that I've seen that in my lifetime. So well, it's exciting. I hope that it leads to more people voting. Yes. Um, and I want to thank you for this book and I, I really recommend Feminist Fight Club. Um, I give it to a friend who's older who's a nurse um, who's now been 
moved up in the ranks and she has to manage all of her colleagues. Um, and so I, I think that it, the book is great for people who are starting out or before you're starting out in the industry. Yeah. Um, and even for me who isn't starting out and is actually managing people, um, I still found it really thoughtful. So it Thank was you. it was a wonderful to read. And I um, always love reading your your work online. And sorry, I should say in print, but I really only read it online. <laughs> the New York Times. So I'm not going to tell people where they can subscribe to the New York Times. <laughs> but Jessica, thank you so much for being on Employee of the Month. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Alex Seiner for editing this wonderful podcast together. Thank you to the Writers Guild and to Jessica Bennett. I'd tell you to go check out the New York Times, but you probably already do. Um, do check out her book. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a high rating on iTunes. It means a great deal. You can follow me at Twitter at, at Katie Lazarus. Join our Facebook page, EOTMs, and get on our mailing list employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out about more episodes and you can also come to one of our live tapings at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. It's a lot to do. I agree. Maybe you just need a nap now. Whatever it is you need. Hope you get it. Take care. Bye.